Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I want to continue on uh, this series on happiness that I started last time. Um, happiness part two. And uh, I wanted to start by first sharing with you um, something that particularly uh, was reminded when Carol gave her, her talk last night and was talking about the, that man, the humanitarian, who had uh, dedicated his, his energy and life to AIDS, uh, the crisis in Africa, and how hard it is to, to keep, keep the, the energy up and the, the heart open in the face of all of that suffering after a while. And I want to say that I have had this thought in my mind also uh, over these last years as I've explored uh, joy and happiness. You know, how, can we, how can we focus on happiness and, and joy when there's so much suffering in the world? And at times it can seem trivial or living in denial, when you hear stories like, uh, like she shared last night. And I wanted to say that when I, I started writing uh, or exploring joy a, a number of years ago, I really uh, started writing my thoughts in August of uh, 2001. And I was really, you know, all full of energy to just get into joy. And then uh, September 11th happened, a month after I had a really productive month. I thought, oh, this is going to be really easy. Uh, Not easy, this is going to be really fun and nourishing. And then when September 11th happened, um, it was like I was shell-shocked. And I had this thought occur to me many times, you know, what, how could you write about joy? And for quite some time, I couldn't pick up a pen and it seemed either superficial or out of touch. And all the joy was gone. And uh, after some time of feeling my pain, and I felt that, like so many others, were either shell-shocked or angry or uh, enraged or confused, what does this mean, uh, or numb, um, I, I couldn't get in touch for a while with that positive energy that I so believe is the source of effective action in the world and is, for me, so aligned with the teachings. Um, and then I realized that that is just what's needed when we go through a lot of pain and suffering to somehow access that openness to life that says, yes, that there's, there's, this is worth committing to. There is enough goodness in the world to contact and, and to access and to, to let the energy come from that place. And that it's not really living in denial. It gives what we need 
to make a difference and also to invite others the same. You know, we read, it's so easy to read about terrorism or racism or all the ways that we're cruel to each other and, and, and we get blitzed by the media of you know, all the awful things there are in the world and we don't see all the goodness that's there. Uh, this is partly what uh, I'll be talking about tonight, how we can open up to suffering as a path to happiness and joy. I wanted to just share um, a, a really beautiful passage from Howard Zinn uh, in an essay. It's an essay in a book that uh, I love called The Impossible Will Take a Little While, A Citizen's Guide to Hope in a Time of Fear. Uh, and it's a, an anthology of many, many different writers from Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu and etc., etc., And this is from his essay, The Optimism of Uncertainty. He says, To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. The essence of the, the Buddha's teachings is, as I see it, the one main principle is that it's possible to transform our pain and our suffering into peace and into the highest happiness. And when we look at, at people who are inspirations, who've really understood suffering, there's a kind of um, mis- mystery of how they've converted their pain into great joy. And particularly, two people come to mind. One is uh, the Dalai Lama, of course, who, if you've ever seen, has this infectious joy that just being around him awakens that in anyone who's, who's in his vicinity. And he's seen more suffering than all of us put together many, many times over, as his He sees people every day who've gone through unspeakable pains and sorrows, not to mention his country being taken over. And yet he has this joy. Desmond Tutu is another inspiration for me. Again, who's seen so much sorrow and pain, and yet that same buoyancy and vitality. So how do they do that? How do they do that? As I say, tonight I want to take a look. That's the main focus of how being with our pain and learning to hold our suffering is actually a path to joy and happiness. I want to talk about three different aspects um, 
as we explore this. The first is picking up where um, I left off from the last, the last talk. I started to, uh, to talk, or at least at the end, I touched a bit about intention and the importance of that. And I want to focus a little bit more on that as we start, because as we get clear on our intention, it holds our process in a context of inspiration, courage, determination, and allows us to go through all the, the hard stuff um, from, a, from a place of commitment and, um, and wisdom. The other day we had the um, instructions about noticing our intentions. And as Howie mentioned, intentions are here in every moment, every single moment. And on one level, intention is something that we see how we meet this moment will determine our unfolding and our happiness and our, or our suffering. And, I, and next talk... I want to go into this in more depth. But tonight I want to talk about intention in the, in the sense of aspiration. The eightfold link that, is, that says wise intention. You know, again, as you go through the, the, uh, the prayer wheel, you ever notice that one? If you ever pick up wise intention, no, what does that mean? When we get clear on our intention, when we have a vision of what we want to create in our lives, it gives us direction. And it also is a kind of protection when we get confused and, um, and do unskillful things. Or we get frightened and we don't know how to handle things when they're so overwhelming. I was around uh, the Dalai Lama a number of years ago. I was fortunate enough to be part of a conference that was happening in, uh, in India and uh, in Dharamsala. And it was a very striking um, piece of teaching that I got from him at that conference where he was asked, one day he was asked, how do you handle all the suffering that you see. And he thought for a moment and he said, my sincere motivation is my protection. And it really, you could feel him just connecting with his sincerity of heart, his sincerity of intention. Then the next day somebody asked, how do you work with all the fear. He said sometimes even he can get afraid and he certainly sees fear all around him. And without missing a beat, he said, my sincere motivation is my protection. If we can get in touch with our sincerity of motivation, our sincerity of intention, as you sit here and all the different ups and downs come your way and you don't know if you have the capacity, all you need to come back to is that sincerity of heart that says I'm in this to wake up or whatever your sincere motivation is just getting in touch with that purity of heart that becomes your greatest protection 
it's a protection and it also gives us, as I say, a vision aligning us with what really matters. In the teachings, there's a, um, one teaching on um, clear comprehension of purpose, which is aligned with mindfulness. Not only are you seeing in the moment what is happening, but there's a context for what you're doing. There's clear comprehension of purpose, of suitability in the, the uh, situation that you're in, clear comprehension of, of reality. This clear comprehension of purpose is a very um, powerful um, inspiration to get us through our difficult times. But first we have to get clear on what our purpose is. I want to share a story uh, that I've, I've shared uh, before. Some of you have heard about getting in touch with clear comprehension of purpose and invite you perhaps to do that as we're exploring this. It was on that same trip to, um, to that conference that um, my plane was going to be landing in uh, Frankfurt on the way to Asia. And um, my friend, Miss Wilson, over here, said, oh, you're landing in Frankfurt. Oh, you should visit Mother Mira. Because uh, she was very inspired and moved by Mother Mira. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, no, you really should see, see Mother Mira. Said, All right. And then I heard that Mother Mira uh, grants you the boon of whatever you wish for. And then I thought, oh, okay, I'll go see Mother Mira. <laughs> So I went to, um, I arranged my, my uh, flight to stay over a couple of days and go to see Mother Mira, who's this Indian sage and holy woman. And I, um, uh, I went there and it's, you, you go for a darshan, oh, about 150 people or so in this room, you're all sitting in silence. And then Mother Mira comes in and um, she comes and sits down, no... No talk, no Dharma talk, no nothing. It's a very, when you're that high, it's a pretty, pretty good job. You just love people and bless them in silence. Right? <clears throat> and uh, each one comes up one by one and um, gets a darshan with Mother Mira. And uh, so there I was. And you kind of wait your turn. There's a, there's a waiting on deck circle kind of when you go up. And then when you're ready, you go there and then sit in, in front and um, be, with, be with her for about 45 seconds or so. You just first you put your head down and she touches you and does something that is pretty powerful. And then you look into her eyes, into eternity. And then after a while, she closes her eyes, and that's the signal that it's over. So I thought, okay, well, this will be interesting. Now, somebody had told me she grants whatever you want, so I don't want to go up right away, you know, and just, oh, well, and then kind of figure it out when I get there. I wanted to take some time and just get clear, what do I really want? What really matters to me? And I thought for a while, and well, do I want 
another experience. No, those all come and go. So if I want any thing, any kind of stuff, no, they just come and go. What do I really, really want? And I waited. I was about, oh, three quarters of the way through the crowd just before I really got, as I kept on reflecting, what I really, really want, what really mattered to me. And I got there, focusing on it, and just being witnessed in that environment with, with all of that intensity and intention um, got me really clear as to what really mattered to me. And as I got in touch with it, since that time, which is now oh, 12 years later, every day I say that intention, every time before I sit, and give a talk every time before I meet with people, just getting clear what really matters. And so, whether or not it was her magic or just focusing that deeply gets me more and more in touch with, with that intention, that clear comprehension of purpose. Now, I ask you, if you were in that position and you were in front of some holy person who could grant you what you really wanted, what would it be? Just want to invite you to close your eyes for a moment and imagine yourself in that situation with a, a holy person granting your deepest wish What would it be? Your deepest heart's desire. Could you feel it? That becomes the support for you to go through all the ups and downs. That sincerity of intention. And really, that sincerity of intention, that clear comprehension of purpose, is what you sense will bring you true happiness. Isn't that so? It's about the intention to be happy. Whatever it is that inspires you, opening my heart, waking up, understanding suffering, being of service, you do that because that's where happiness lies when you reflect deeply on it. And it's something that is important for us to get in touch with the intention to be happy. In the, the course uh, that, I, that I share on uh, Awakening Joy, we, um, we use a book that many of you have heard me talk about called How We Choose to Be Happy uh, by Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. 
the nine choices of extremely happy people. And they went for three years interviewing about 300 people to see their secrets and distilled nine common denominators. And the very first in the, of the choices is intention. And it's the intention to be happy. Because just like whether or not you're a Buddhist, the intention starts everything going. And when you get clear that your intention is to be happy, then you want to see where true happiness lies. And it's a choice we can make. And it doesn't depend on everything going your way. Uh, The book is filled with lots of great stories and uh, one that I love to share just to see that you can choose is um, somebody who really had a lot of pain and sorrow in her life and is one of these extremely happy people that just light up a room. It's one of our first interviewees, Adele, showed us early on that happy people don't necessarily live charmed lives. In 1991, she experienced an unusually tragic set of losses. Her life unraveled as the losses began to pile up. In one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground, the Oakland fire leaving me with nothing, no clothes, photos, furniture, no material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman at the same time that my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. Everything in her life disappeared and she, made, she had to make a decision about how she'd go on. And the first was, what was her intention? Would she live or die? And this is her talking again. I had nothing. I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity. I had a clean slate. And as long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. In spite of my grief, I could see that all this added up to happiness for a lifetime. It goes on to talk about how she processed all of her pain and grief, and it wasn't just an overnight kind of a, a thing. But getting clear on that intention to be happy allows us to go through our sorrow and confusion and not think all is lost. This is from Chicken Soup for the Soul. Driving home from work one day, I stopped to watch a local Little League baseball game. As I sat down behind the bench on first baseline, I asked one of the boys what the score was. We're behind 14 to nothing, he answered, smiling. Really, I said. I have to say, you don't look very discouraged. 
Discouraged, the boy asked with a puzzled look. Why should we be discouraged? We haven't been up to bat yet. <laughs> when you think it's all lost and you think, oh, there's no, no way out of this, no turning back, we can forget easily how things change. And they do, don't they? Don't they? <laughs> they do. So, with this intention to be happy, to be willing to go through wherever life leads us, we learn, as the Buddha said, the first noble truth, there is suffering in life, and that there's an end to suffering. And the Buddha said, if you really want to be happy, you've got to come to terms with the fact that there is dukkha. By the way, in that book, they make the point, truly happy people aren't happy all the time. It's not like they're going around saying, oh yes, I'm happy. And in fact, if they found somebody like that, generally it turned out that they were in complete denial. But truly happy people are engaged with life and are here for the whole show and not afraid, don't flinch. So how we relate to this fact, this fundamental fact of suffering, is the key to our happiness. In one um, beautiful teaching of the Buddhas, he talks about the fact that suffering not only is something that we learn to accept, but it becomes a causative factor for gladness, joy, happiness, and full liberation. It's one lesser-known list called Transcendental Dependent Arising, if you feel like impressing your friends. Uh, And it starts off that suffering can be the supportive condition for faith. Faith can be the supportive, is the supportive condition for gladness. Gladness is the supportive condition for joy. Joy is the supportive condition for happiness, on to tranquility and concentration and understanding the way things are, all the way up to full liberation. Now, usually, when people have suffering, experience suffering, in, our, in the world, we don't, it doesn't often lead to faith and happiness or joy, or we don't think of it that way anyway. A lot of times it can lead to bitterness, fear, contraction, anger, rage. That's understandable. I mean, just look at what's happening in the world right now. Because people have been suffering or not respected or um, feeling shamed or feeling cut out of, of the bounty of, of life or whatever the reason. And it can give rise to a lot of anger and rage, understandably, which just perpetuates that cycle. But 
given the right circumstances, suffering can lead to faith. As perhaps most of you know who come to practice, the Buddha said, suffering can be a wake-up call. That's why he started his teaching with the first noble truth. Yeah, there's suffering in life. Let's really understand this. Let's come to terms with this. When we open up to our suffering with wisdom, it helps us to examine the nature of suffering. It shakes us out of our complacency that says, oh yeah, life is just going along fine and, you know, hey, this is, you know, this is just, uh, life is a bowl of cherries and it's cool. Well, and then something happens that really rocks us. We get a diagnosis or we lose a friend or something uh, really painful happens. If we have an awareness of the truth of suffering and have some teaching that shows us a way to deal with it and to grow with it, then it can be the causative factor for faith. Because then we see that the source of our suffering or our happiness is not out there, it's in here. And we see that as much as we think we can have stuff to our liking and we try to make it secure, that we don't have control over life. That's a scary thing to see. We don't really have any control. And we never did have control over how life is unfolding. Sometimes it takes us hitting the bottom for us to let go of thinking that we can have control and fix it. And we get to the point that says, I give up. You ever get to that point and say, I give up. That's a very profound moment. Because when the I gives up, we're letting go of thinking that we can make it just the way we want, and we surrender. That limited sense of I surrenders to something larger. And we see that happiness is not about control. And we seek where it really is found in true liberation. And we start looking for some guideposts that can help us deal with the suffering. And we might turn to the Buddha's teachings. Or we might turn to an inspiration of friends who've gone through suffering, who somehow have understood. And we might see, well, maybe there's another way than what I've been told. And one source of this faith is looking to the refuges, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. Or we find enough value in practice as we keep on looking for ourselves, as we see, okay, 
here's suffering, can I deal with it, can I work with it, that there are tools to work with it that give us our own faith so that it's not just believing somebody out there, but it becomes a kind of verified faith that we know for ourselves. And when we start to see that there is a way to work with suffering and that the Dharma offers us the possibility of freedom, it's really so exciting, isn't it? Do you remember when you first realized, oh, wow, there's a way. I think I mentioned last time when I first heard the teachings and I was in so much suffering and and I was hearing Joseph saying, there's really a way, and I believed him. I figured he knew something that I didn't and I wanted to know what it was. Do you remember that first time where you said, I think I found what I've been looking for? Then you have what, is sometimes called the honeymoon phase, (laughs) which is filled with joy. Thank whatever. Thank God. Thank life. Thank the universe. How did I get so lucky? Do you know what I mean? This is some degree of faith leading to a gladness and and a joy. That suffering isn't just something that we endure or accept, but there's a lawful process, there's a lawful karma to working with our suffering wisely. We might think as you start a retreat, well, gosh, you know, I'm looking at all of this stuff that I wasn't needing to preoccupy myself with before. Maybe I would have been better off not looking at all this, you know, just thinking ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is suffering. Joseph has this one line, he says, the not seeing of dukkha is dukkha. That's a great line. The not seeing of dukkha is dukkha. Because if you don't see it, you're bound to keep on getting caught in it. Pema Chodron has this teaching, when we see all of the, the pain, we see all the suffering that maybe we find ourselves caught in, to take delight in the noticing. Because what is it that sees that we got caught? There's something that sees, wow, got really caught there, or I am Freaking out. Freaking out, Buddha. That's what this is. What is it that sees that? There's an awareness that can see that. And there's something even stronger than all the confusion and the fear and the doubt that keeps us going. Isn't that amazing? I reflect on that from time to time. You know, we, sometimes it seems it's so overwhelming. We've got so much fear, so much confusion, so much doubt. And it just doesn't seem like we can handle it. But there's something that keeps us practicing, that keeps us looking, that keeps you, the wake-up bell comes, you know, you come in here, okay, one more day. (laughs) What is it that keeps us looking at that? 
And I find it's really inspiring to see that even stronger than our doubt and our confusion, this something keeps us facing in the right direction. And although it might be hard to look at that suffering, if we don't, it's going to be there anyway. I think of, you know, the, you ever, I'm sure we all have had band-aids covering a wound, you know, and it's been on there for like a week and it's really on there, or a, a bandage, right? You think, oh my God, it's been on there for a long time. This is going to hurt. Well, it hurts to take off the protection, but it's needed in order to heal. And so you just go, here we go. Ah, ooh. It's okay. You don't think you're going to live through it, but ah, okay. Now it's ready for the next stage of healing. It's the same way with our suffering thing. Oh, who wants to go there? But if you don't go there, if you keep on covering it over and um, deceiving yourself into protection from feeling that pain, well, you're just deceiving yourself. Robert Bly has this line, he says, every part of us that we do not learn to love will become hostile to us. We have to open up to the whole show. We have to see our sadnesses, our fears, our pettiness, our anger, our the whole show. You can't say, oh, let's have the wisdom come out. Oh, how, I will take that compassion and the love. Let's keep the other stuff down there, though. You know. uh-uh. It means being willing to open up to all of it and hold it with compassion, hold it with wisdom. That's where you really develop the, the paramis. You really develop the courage. You really develop the, the patience and the loving kindness just by being willing to open up to it. So opening up to our dukkha, to em- embrace or open to, the, to our dukkha as a, a path to joy. In, the, uh, in this book, Recast, uh, How We Choose to Be Happy, one of the choices is recasting, which is another way of saying what we're talking about. All of those people that they interviewed have had to learn how to deal with pain or suffering in their life. If not, then they're not really genuinely happy. So how do we? How do we deal with it? Well, there's the suffering or the dukkha that we experience when we're very afraid. Every time we go into new territory, we're going to be afraid. How do we deal with fear? And tomorrow night, Guy is going to be uh, talking in depth about fear, so I, I won't go into it uh, much right now, but just to see that fear is not the enemy, it's an ally, because it is showing us where we need to grow. And it helps us find a strength that we didn't know was there. 
I, I love this story of uh, Julia Butterfly Hill, who's one of my, my heroes, the woman who was up in the tree, up in Luna, uh, for a couple of years. In the worst winter on record, El Nino, she picked the big El Nino a number of years ago, and she went up not realizing she was going to stay there for a long time, thinking she was just going to be up there for a couple of weeks. So she went up unprepared, right? and she was up there for two years. And she went through the, just the most arduous uh, conditions. And when the first really terrible storm hit, she prayed to God. She said, please, God, give me the strength to get through this. And then a worse storm came. Right? You know, she somehow got through it, and she said, please, Give me the strength to go, to, to, to go through these trials. And then another worse storm came. And she kept on doing this, and she realized that every time she was asking for God to give her the strength, she was getting another <laughs> dose to give her the strength to say, Oh, I can do this. After about five times, she said she stopped asking for it. She, <laughs> she, got, she got the idea, okay, I do have the strength. But when we go through our deepest fears, it calls in us something that we didn't know was there. So not to think that this is a problem. It's actually a real gift in practice. We go through dukkha that we need to open up to when on top of our difficulties, we add our own judgments about how we think we should be or shouldn't be. Carol talked about self-judgment beautifully last night. We don't have to add complications on top of our pain. So we feel anger, and then we get angry with ourselves for feeling anger. Or we feel sadness, and then we judge ourselves for being such a wimp and feeling such sadness. That's called adding a second dart on top of the first the Buddha said. The first dart hurts enough. Adding a second one by thinking we should be better than we are, that's real pain. To just open up, oh, here's sadness. Oh, here's anger. Here's confused Buddha. That's enough. We open up just a little bit at a time. We open up to our physical pain just a little at a time not compounding it by saying, it shouldn't be here. Why is this happening to me? Just, okay, just this much. It's like this. Let's be with this for a few moments. And then you see there's a capacity that you didn't know was there. We have suffering on our lives when we experience loss. And this is something that we all know. There's a suffering, a pain that comes, a dukkha that comes when we lose our sweet meditation experience. You've probably seen that from time to time. You have a great meditation. Mmm, I think I finally got it. (laughs) And then you come into the hall. Yeah, I remember. Let's go. Take me away. 
That's not how it works. I remember the first time I, I sat on a retreat. I sat a retreat. This is in Great Barrington in uh, 1974. And I had this one meditation after a few days. I'd never experienced anything like that. It was like, it didn't matter if the bell never rang. It was so cool. I was breathing in, the universe was breathing out. I was breathing out, the universe was breathing in. Oh, wow. And then for the next few days, every time I sat, well, let's get on with it. And it wasn't there. I went in to have an interview with Joseph and I said, you know, a few days ago, I really got it. And now I've lost it. How do I get it back? And he told me a story that was so helpful for me in my practice, which he's written about in one of his books. He told me about this time in his practice where everything was just going well and he was sitting and just his body was filled with light and his mind was clear and he was in that space for, for a number of weeks and months. Then he went back to, to, uh, to the U.S. and visited family, didn't practice so much. No, he was coming back to practice in Asia and he went back to sit and remembering very well where he was and just where he'd been and then waiting for it to happen. He said, I sat and my, my mind was like mud and my body was like twisted steel. Right? And then he said, I, near, I spent nearly two years trying to recapture that experience. Even though his teachers told him, just be with things as they are. And then he leaned forward and he said, I was the dummy. I did it for you. You don't have to be the dummy. <laughs> I, thank you very much. <laughs> it's painful when we have something sweet and then we want to hold on to it. That's not the way things are. Just being with the way things are. We have suffering that we need to work with when we have real loss in our lives. When we lose when relationships end or when our bodies start to not cooperate. And there's some major sorrows and tragedies that we all come to experience. As a reflection, the Buddha says, every day to reflect everything near and dear to us will become separated from us. If you remember that, realize that is inherent in this changing world, you're not so confused or uh, devastated. I want to share the possibility of turning our deep tragedy into not only um, workable understanding, but changing it into some, and, and still living in happiness and joy. And uh, it has to do with somebody who um, has often sat on this retreat, who came here the other night. Perhaps you might have heard on uh, Sunday night the bells were ringing a lot. Did you hear that? It's like during tea time. And uh, that uh, was the anniversary of the death of her 14-year-old 
who took her life, this beautiful, beautiful being, um, in 1997. And each year she would come here to, during that time, to work with her sorrow and her pain. And the first, and I would work with her over these years, the first four or five years, really hard. It was all she could do, like Adele, can I keep on living? Can I find meaning? And the Dharma was her one life lifeline. And each time she had this commitment to make some meaning out of the out of her sorrow. And little by little she started coming back to life and integrating her pain and her sorrow. And she is she could be in this book. She's a radiant being who finally not only dealt with her sorrow, but has said yes to life in a most amazing way. And she sent me a, a card a couple of years ago. It's one of the few cards that I have. It's on my puja table of these five guys from, I think, Burma, uh, who are laughing um, at this cute little, cute little boy and it says, uh, joy is not in things, is not in things, it is in us. And it's this, this amazing, joyful picture. I can leave it up here. And uh, she wrote inside the card, part of what she wrote, I've received a gift that is beyond words. I've witnessed my deepest despair, the darkest, most wounded quarters of my heart, and learned to not flinch or back away. I rested in love and have even tasted joy, all the while still knowing the sorrow of my loss. A few days ago, I held a bereaved mother in my arms as she sobbed. She works with people who've gone through what she has. She had lost her son to suicide. I held her to my heart as she held on for dear life. And as I rocked her, it was as if I was rocking Julia rocking myself, rocking the broken hearts of all beings. And in that rocking, in that holding, we were all held in one heart. I've been so blessed. So not to think when tragedy has struck that it's the end of your life. It's just, it's the start of the next chapter. How can I use this and make some meaning of this and grow in my compassion and my understanding and my love? How can I keep on saying yes to life and be of service? Part of opening up to our pain and our sorrow is knowing when you're no longer balanced. It's not to just go in there each moment and say, okay, one of us will come out alive, you know. You just have to really honor where you're at and see, okay, this is what I can handle. Now I just need to back off. The Buddha has lots of different uh, prescriptions for dealing with suffering and sorrow or dealing with distracting thoughts. And he says, sometimes you just need to do metta. 
Sometimes you just need to turn your mind someplace else because it's too hard, it's too fatigued. That's really skillful practice, to know how you can be balanced and deal with the challenges. And one way to deal with the challenges that I find that I want to share as the, the last part of this talk is holding all of our sorrow with a heart of gratitude and appreciation. Because that gratitude brings perspective. If we only see what's wrong, then that's a very slanted view of life. But if we see all of our blessings as well, it allows us to hold all the pain. Appreciation and a spirit of wonder really sees all the, as, as William Blake calls it, the minute particulars of life. You ever go out in the walking meditation and you start looking at a plant and just seeing, seeing what's going on there? Wow, it's life happening right in front of me. You know what I mean? All it takes is just a more careful looking to see this magic all around us to look for the beautiful and the good, like I read from that Ajahn Sumedho quote, to look at the magic all around, to have a heart of gratitude for the blessings in our life. Sokni Rinpoche talks about opening up to all the blessings in our life you know, in a devotional way, just being so thankful for a blessing. It's just like a, a, gratit- uh, like a satellite dish where you're able to receive all the blessings in your heart of devotion and your heart of gratitude. I wanted to share with you uh, the Buddha's discourse on blessings so that you can keep this in mind. When he was asked, what are the blessings supreme? He said, to associate not with the foolish, to be with the wise, to honor the worthy ones, this is a blessing supreme. To reside in a suitable location, to have past deeds done, to set oneself in the right direction, this is a blessing supreme. To be well-spoken, highly trained, well-educated, skilled in handicraft, and highly disciplined, this is a blessing supreme. To be well to be well caring of mother and father, to look after spouse and children, to engage in a harmless op- occupation, a blessing supreme. Outstanding behavior, blameless action, open hands to all, and selfless giving. This is a blessing supreme. To cease and abstain from causing suffering, to avoid intoxicants which cause heedlessness, to be diligent in virtuous practices. This is a blessing supreme. To be reverent, humble, content, and grateful, to hear the Dharma at the right time is a blessing supreme. To be patient, Obedient, visit with spiritual people, discuss the Dharma at the right time, a blessing supreme. To live simply and purely, to see the noble truths and realize Nibbana, this is the blessing supreme. A mind unshaken when touched by the worldly states, sorrowless, stainless, and secure, this is the blessing supreme. Those who fulfilled all these are everywhere invincible, they find well being everywhere. Theirs is the blessing supreme. 
Do you notice as you were, as I was saying that list? Oh, that one? Well, that one? Well, maybe not that one. That one? That one? We're so incredibly blessed. And to hold our challenges within that larger context allows us, along with our intention, to be here for the dukkha. Just for a moment, you might just reflect on all the blessings in your own life. You might just go inside. What are you grateful for? Who are you grateful to? It's the different ways life supports you in doing this. feels good, doesn't it? If you're going through hard stuff, just remember, you can bless yourself by opening up to all the goodness in your life. So I want to close with this talk, the poem that I, I really love and I, I, I often read on retreats, talking about this opening to our suffering as a path to joy by a woman named Rashani, who actually, when you go into the, uh, the dining room, if you see on the wall the, uh, the gratitude painting, she did the gratitude painting, all the names of the people who, who've helped build Spirit Rock Center. She says, There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable, There's a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. So let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by James Barras at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 14, 2006. It is an offering of the 